Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Halloween was just a few days ago, and it's one of my favorite holidays, so we wanted to recap some of the Halloween stories that we did this year. When you're looking for a costume, if you Google sexy anything costume, chances are you will be directed to Yandy.com, where you can find costumes to be sexy witch, sexy Mr. Rogers, and yes, even a sexy impeachment costume. For more on the sexy Halloween costume industrial complex, we spoke to Mara Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. So they are a really interesting company. If you've ever searched for a sexy Halloween costume, they're probably the first result that comes up on Google for you. And they get a lot of attention every year for these topical and sometimes inappropriate sexy costumes that they do. And I just wanted to see how they were designed. So I was able to sit in on a photo shoot for one of their top costumes this year, which is sexy impeachment. I have not seen that one. Describe to me what that looks like. (laughs) So Sexy Impeachment is kind of based on Trump's former ownership of the Miss Universe pageant. And Uh so it's like a peach-colored pageant gown and a princess crown and a sash that says Miss Impeachment and then a necklace that's made out of a whistle. So you get the joke. (laughs) That is pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, every year we kind of even wait for what's that eye roll costume, let's say, that happens. And it's always something crazy. There was like a sexy pizza rat, I Mm -hmm. guess, sexy impeachment, sexy Mr. Rogers even, you know, all these different ones elicit some eye rolls, but they're also made to be funny. They're part of a joke, really. Tell us how they go about designing these costumes. So they actually are a group effort among people who work at Yandy. They have this giant spreadsheet that they circulate like towards the beginning of the Halloween season every year. And they all put these crazy ideas down and a lot of them get rejected. And so I actually got to see the list when I was there. And one of the um, rejected costumes that caught my eye this year was they were thinking about doing a sexy AOC, Alexandria Orcasio-Cortez. But then they decided to shuttle that because they weren't sure how she would take it, whether it would be a compliment or an insult. So no sexy AOC this year. (laughs) And where did the rise of all the sexy Halloween costumes come from? Because there's always been women and they've wanted to dress up a little bit nicer on the Halloween. But when did we really start getting into this where everything was made into a sexy whatever costume? started to get a little bit more risque after the sexual revolution, like in the 60s and 70s. But they didn't really become the thing that they are now, I would say, until like the 90s and the early 2000s. And, you know, it's kind of become sort of a punchline or a joke. Like it was a big plot point in Mean Girls. Everyone always remembers that part of the movie. And it's kind of evolved into this thing now where we love the sexy Halloween costume, but we also make fun of it because it's sort of a cliche. And now it's become this kind of like meta ironic joke for people who want to mock the trend by coming up with these really increasingly ridiculous sexy costumes, like things that should never be sexy, like sexy Abraham Lincoln, which is also (laughs) called Abraham Lincoln, I learned. (laughs) So then it's like, you know, you can't tell whether people are taking it seriously or if they're doing it as a joke now. There's a lot of fun that goes into this, but Yandy has not gone on without coming across some controversy. Every year they hit something that either has to be removed or maybe make an apology. Talk a little bit about that. 
Sometimes they come right up to this line and sometimes they cross it. And so people probably remember from the other year, the sexy handmaid from Handmaid's Tale. That did not go over well for them. There was a petition. They ended up having to take it down. They had told me that they did that costume because they had just seen protesters wearing the handmade costumes at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings uh, right. for the Supreme Court. But they didn't really understand, I think, how that would be taken and how it could be seen as kind of a symbol of sexual repression. And another thing that they've gotten in trouble for are their Native American costumes. I think people have started to have a better appreciation and understanding of how people's cultures should not be a costume. So there has been a petition from Native American tribes that want them to take down those Native American costumes, which they ultimately did earlier this year. And there's always costumes waiting to be called out. As you mentioned in your article, there's a geisha costume. There's a men's authentic Mexican tequila costume, which is just a poncho and a sombrero. A lot of times with these types of costumes, it really is on the individual to take offense to something like that. I think you noted that the vice president of merchandising there at Yandy is Mexican or Mexican-American, and she doesn't get offended by these things. I myself am the same. I don't get offended by some of those costumes. So it really is kind of subjective on that front. We talked a little bit about the money that goes into Halloween costumes. How much a part of their business is this? Because primarily they're like a lingerie company for the most part of the year, but Halloween is the time to shine for this stuff. So they make about a quarter of their annual revenue off of Halloween, but the rest of the year they're selling bras and all kinds of other lingerie. But Halloween is a really big business for them. During the rest of the year, they tend to ship about a thousand orders a day, but in the months leading up to Halloween, it's like 9,000 orders a day and their warehouse is super busy. They're just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and they have tons and tons of shipments of Halloween costumes going out all times of the day. They're definitely doing things right because every year we're talking about them specifically. It usually is this company that you're talking about. And as you said, when you do a Google search for sexy anything, they are one of the first websites that come up. So they're doing it right. And obviously they do have their controversies here and there, but it's always kind of fun to talk about what the new big sexy costume is going to end up being. It really always gets attention. I mean, you kind of have to admire their entrepreneurial spirit. Like they always want to find the next thing and the next meme. And they're really good at kind of shipping costumes out very last minute. So if something happens in October, they're able to design a costume really, really fast and get it out there. So they have a sexy sold out Popeye's chicken sandwich was their last (laughs) one this year after that, that sandwich that everyone loved. Mara Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another Halloween story we covered this week was the dying trend of trick-or-treating. And while kids are still getting their hands on sweets and we're spending more than ever on candy, the tradition of knocking door-to-door is fading in favor of alternative Halloween events like trunk-or-treats and other community celebrations. So trick-or-treating might not be dying, rather it could be evolving. For more on this, we spoke to Ursula Pirano. She's a reporter at Axios. So sort of the big picture here is that year after year, communities across America are claiming to see less trick-or-treaters, giving a lot of people this impression that the holiday is fading out. But the reality is, is that kids are still participating. They're just taking their business elsewhere. A lot of families have begun to move towards alternative, more centralized events, trunk-or-treats, for example, which are hosted in a contained area and are often more convenient for families, especially those from rural communities who may have struggled to do the whole house-to-house tradition. And these events are also arguably safer, which, of course, was always a huge concern for parents on Halloween. 
a lot of times when people think of whatever the traditional trick-or-treating thing is, they're thinking about suburban neighborhoods where you can go down one block and hit 10 houses, turn right, hit another block and hit another 10 houses. I mean, that's kind of what everybody really thinks of when we're thinking of trick-or-treating. And it's different everywhere. You know, in rural towns, it's different. and In urban cities, it's different. You mentioned trunk or treats was a thing that was gaining popularity. Can you explain what that is? Because I had never heard of that one before this. Yeah, so they sort of get together and lots of people bring their cars, literally open up their trunk. People will decorate, try and make it look spooky the same way you would decorate your front yard. So sort of keeping with that traditional Halloween feel. But instead of going door to door, you just walk trunk to trunk when kids are able to say hello, say trick or treat all the same and receive their candy. But there's no knocking. It's a little more contained. It's easier for parents to keep an eye out on their kids. That's actually a pretty good idea. Keep it you know, small. This could be your local community and everything. So that's actually kind of a cool idea. We've seen how all of this has been changing over the years. I know mall trick or treating was pretty big for some time, but now there's a decline in malls. So I don't know how, how well that's going to pan out. But I just remember when I was a kid, you know, as soon as it was dark, we'd hit the neighborhood, we'd go out and we wouldn't come back until like 10 o'clock. You know, we'd spend hours out there. And I think that's also another part of it. A lot of times right now, parents will take their kids maybe once or twice around the block really quick and short. And that's kind of the end of it. Growing up, I used to get together with my friends and go house to house. I lived in a very traditional suburb, so you knew a lot of your neighbors, and it was this extremely fun event. But in working on a story, you know, I talked to my dad, who still lives in that same neighborhood, and he says he just sees such a low turnout. And in a lot of communities, there are other factors contributing towards that. Some cities have even begun to set age limits or official trick-or-treating hours for the holiday, which really just adds strain to what can already be sort of a difficult endeavor for families and yeah. parents and managing if it's a weeknight, worry about school the next day, just adding those restraints only sort of further contributes towards the dying tradition. We're talking about other events that are kind of taking more prominence. One of the other things that I've noticed that happens a lot now are when a small neighborhood or a local community, they'll go the extra effort and decorate a bunch of houses and everybody kind of knows that's the place to go. So people from neighboring cities, even it could get pretty big. They'll go to that little neighborhood to trick or treat. And then that basically leaves all the surrounding areas as little candy deserts, almost, if you will. People aren't going to really go out there because they know they're going to go get really great candy, see a bunch of cool Halloween decorations in these other smaller neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods who truly get really into it. You always have that neighborhood during Christmas that puts up a ton of lights and everybody loves to drive down their street. Halloween is sort of the same way. It's become this norm for kids within a community to know which of the suburbs, which of the streets are going to have the best candy, the most kids. If you grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of retirees, you're going to know that maybe you hop over to your friend's house to do your trick-or-treating because you sincerely get more out of the holiday. It's such an interesting thing to kind of talk about just because we're seeing all this evidence. Anecdotally, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, there was 10 trick-or-treaters last year, things like that. But when we get these statistics from the National Retail Federation, they always put out the numbers on how much people are actually spending on Halloween candy. And if that's a marker, we're still spending tons of money and it seems like increasing numbers every year. So this kind of leads us to believe that, yeah, maybe the traditional trick-or-treating is dying out, but everybody is still kind of doing something, as we've been talking about in all these other places. Parents are still going to want to do this with their kids. It's just such a treasured childhood memory for everyone to dress up and walk around and just have this great night. 
but things evolve. And so they're sincerely just finding new avenues, things that are more convenient that fit into the typical household schedule a little bit better than trying to fit it all into one night or in a school night or a work night. When Americans are seeing their doors go empty and not seeing the same numbers they used to, that just has to be taken into consideration that it's not that the holiday itself is dying. It's just that people, as you said, are evolving and finding new avenues to celebrate through. One of my favorite pastimes as soon as I got a little too old to trick or treat was just stay home, watch scary movies, and then wait for the trick or treaters to come by because you can see all the cool costumes and everything and you get spooky inside your house watching the movie. So that was kind of one of my favorite things. So I hope there can be a resurgence of some of that again. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, we'll tell you about the most haunted hotel in Los Angeles, the Cecil Hotel. There's been a ton of crazy things happen there. A mother threw her newborn out of a window. A man was killed by a falling woman. A serial killer lived there. And more recently, a traveling tourist was found floating in the water tank of the hotel after people had complained of funny tasting water. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for some of the strange happenings at the Cecil Hotel. So, Victor, you've actually been to this hotel. I have not been there, but we covered it in the news extensively in 2013 in a story we'll get to in a minute. But you've been there. To be clear, I was never inside the hotel. I had a friend who was doing a photo shoot in college, and she was basing it off of a bunch of mysterious murders in Los Angeles. So the Cecil Hotel was one of the biggest places that we had to go for that photo shoot. It's not in the most glamorous of places anymore. It's right in downtown L.A. It's right by Skid Row. There's a lot of homeless people around there. But that also might lead to why so many crazy, unexplained things happened there. Victor, start us off then. Tell us about the opening of the Cecil Hotel. The Cecil was built by hotelier William Banks Hanner back in 1924. And he spent about a million dollars on it. And it was a really nice art style hotel with marble lobby, some stained glass windows, palm trees and everything. Two years after he built it, the Great Depression hit and the area surrounding the Cecil Hotel became what is known as Skid Row. So you have this very nice hotel right in the middle of where thousands of homeless people were living. It grew this reputation for junkies, homeless people, runaways, criminals, and then all this other stuff happened there and it kind of created this whole persona of being the most haunted hotel in Los Angeles. So let's work through some of the suicides, some of the homicides, things that have happened there that have been pretty crazy. Just in the 30s alone, there were around six suicides. And on top of the suicides, there are also a bunch of just bizarre cases. For example, back in 1944, Dorothy Jean Purcell was a 19-year-old girl who was staying at the hotel with a man named Ben Levine. She woke up in the middle of the night with some pretty bad stomach pains. So she went to the bathroom and she gave birth to a child and she never knew that she was pregnant. She then thought that the kid was dead and decided to throw the baby out the window. It's so crazy. And then she went to court for this, but she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital later for treatment. Just pretty crazy. And this one is just weird odds, I guess. I mean, this is why this persona of the most haunted hotel has been built up. In 1962, a 65-year-old man named George Giannini was walking by the Cecil Hotel when a woman named Pauline Otten jumped from the ninth floor window and fell on top of him. 
and killed both of them instantly. Just what crazy odds that that would ever happen. And it's just a small extra creepy detail about it is that the cops actually thought that the two had committed suicide together, but they reconsidered that when they realized that if Giannini also jumped out of the building, his shoes would have fallen off midair the way Pauline Auden's shoes did. In addition to all of this stuff, it also was the home to one of the most notorious serial killers in the U.S. In the mid-80s, Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, was staying there. He lived in a room on the top floor of the hotel. He was staying there during a lot of his killing spree. Back then, he was able to stay there for $14 a night. And people say that when he'd kill somebody, he'd take the bloody clothes and throw down the trash chute. And then he'd walk into the hotel lobby either completely naked or only in underwear. But since in the 80s, the Hotel Cecil was just complete chaos, it wasn't even like an abnormal thing going on there. People thought it was just normal. It's, uh, so, yeah. it's so crazy. But the most interesting thing that happened at the Hotel Cecil just recently was in 2013, and that is the case of Elisa Lamb. She was a Canadian student who went to go stay at the Hotel Cecil, and then she went missing. And later on, she was found on the top floor in a water tank naked, and she was dead. The hoteliers were notified of this, not necessarily of what exactly happened, but a lot of people staying at the hotel complained that their water pressure was not working. They also complained of a very funny taste in the water. They also had this video that they released, which was kind of crazy. It was surveillance video of Elisa Lam getting into one of the elevators and acting very strange. She pushed all the buttons She looked like she was playing hide and seek with somebody almost or somebody was bothering her. The doors wouldn't close. And later she stepped out of the elevator. And that was really the last time anybody saw her. Besides all of the crazy suicides and other insane stories that happened there, Elizabeth Short and Elisa Lamb kind of led to the idea that this hotel was haunted because Elizabeth Short, although she didn't die at the Cecil, she was murdered just a block or two away. And the two stories had very eerie parallels. Yeah, to they them. said Elizabeth Short, the, the Black Dahlia, they also said yeah. that she had stayed there at the hotel. And Elisa Lamb, I mean, just how crazy it was. The guy who ended up finding her, the maintenance worker, Santiago Lopez, who worked at the hotel, said it was just so crazy to actually get up to there without anybody noticing. You have to take the elevator to the 15th floor. You Then you have to climb the stairs to the roof. Then you have to disable the alarm that would have gone to the front desk and the top two floors if somebody accessed the roof. Then you had to climb up on the water tanks and everything. So it was just a crazy situation. And nobody ever knew what happened to Elisa Lamb there. The judge ruled it was an accidental drowning. So just a bunch of crazy stuff happening there at the Hotel Cecil. And it's still there. It's still in operation. They try to do a renovation. They're calling it Stay on Main Hotel and Hostel. And I think you can get a room there for $75 a night. I would not want to stay at this place. There is a bunch of developers from New York. They signed a 99-year lease, and they're essentially trying to completely gut the inside of the hotel and scrub all of these eerie happenings so that they can try to rebuild the Cecil as something that people can actually want to stay at. That's a tough sell. I'm not going to stay there. (laughs) Thank you, Victor. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Oh, 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 o